Well, with all that's going on these days, many people are wondering, where are we in relation to the timeline of history? Is the end soon to come? There's a constant confusion as to, quote, the last days due to the fact that some teachers and celebrity preachers have given it a wrong definition. When we think of the last days, we have to think of the time from actually Christ's ascension, if you want to look at it that way, till his return. But we can even look at his coming, his first coming, his, the birth of Christ to the return of Christ as the last days. I think of this especially today. As we think of our own lives, we have our time of birth, we have our time of death, but as soon as we are born, as soon as we are born, we enter into our last days because there is a time for all of us and each day we get closer and closer to that time. There's only one man in the history that we know of and that was already probably pre-planned by God that, uh, that uh, had uh, his uh, days added on to in the Old Testament. For the rest of us, Every single one of us have a specific number of days, and the moment we are born, the clock starts to tick down. Now that I've made you very happy, and given you this bright, positive picture to go with, well, maybe this will help us to make a little more of our days. This morning, we're getting closer and closer to where our minds will be constantly uh, in thought of the incarnation, uh, the nativity of Christ. But I wish to direct our attention to the resurrection of Christ, particularly as it has relation to the end of the age. Last Sunday in the Sunday school hour, I mentioned the two-age understanding of Scripture the Bible teaches us very plainly that there are two ages and two ages only, that it is this age and the age to come. If you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 12 and, and verse 32, we hear it right from the lips of our own Lord. Jesus had been teaching in regard to what had been called and referred to as the unpardonable sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. In verse 32, he says, Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. And so he says, it will not be forgiven in this age, nor in the age that is to come. So clearly, laying forth the idea that there are specifically and only two ages. The two ages are one of the teachings, like the union of Christ, with Christ, that, that once you see it, you cannot stop seeing it.
Matthew 13. In verse 39, with this parable of the wheat and the tares, Jesus said, the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. The end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The end of this age. So again, we, we see him using that term. If we turn to Mark chapter 10, in verse 30, beginning of verse 28, Jesus had been talking about, uh, in the, had been approached by the rich young ruler who said he could keep, he has kept the Lord, a law of God all his life. But when Jesus told him to sell all that he had, Give to the poor and come follow him. He left. He went away very sorrowful because he had vast possessions. But Peter says, see, we have left all and followed you. And so Jesus answered and said, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, and the gospel, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, this age, houses and brothers, sisters and mothers, children and lands, with persecution, and in the age to come, eternal life. All right. So we see that clearly. Let's turn to Luke chapter 20. In Luke chapter 20 and verse 34, Jesus answered and said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted to a, worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. So again, there's the two ages being spoken of. Now we move very quickly uh, to Ephesians uh, chapter 1 and verse 21. Ephesians 1 verse 21, as Paul is extolling the glories of Christ, far above all principality and power, might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. The age that which is to come. And Hebrews 6 and verse 5 speaks of the age that is to come. And in chapter 9 and verse 26, it mentions the end of the ages. So there are many passages we could turn to to use either one or both of the two terms to find them there, and that would be 
very easy for us to find it in multiple, multiple passages. So then one might look and say, oh, well, this is nice. But why are we drawing attention to it? Well, first, to make this point crystal clear, because of so much of the false teaching that permeates the airwaves, people might even use the term church age. Church age is not found in Scripture. We use, sometimes people use ages, this age, that age, and they come up with a millennial age or, or something similar to that. They add ages on to where Scripture does not have ages. But secondly, and, and most importantly, I want to show you today how the resurrection of Jesus impacts these two ages. And by doing so, give us a great word of comfort in regard to the different, <clears throat> those different times, excuse me, and and as it is all connected to our relation, that is our union with Christ, there should be a calmness, a peace, no matter what conditions are around us or within us. Just the other day, I heard somebody refer to the time in which we live as the age of rage. Rage is a sign not merely of unhappiness with certain conditions and events. It's an overflow of anger, anger that is unchecked from hearts that constantly seek because of their discomfort. They constantly seek to be offended. Does anyone really think that blocking the Durham Freeway is going to make any kind of difference to a conflict thousands of miles away? This is the result of the godlessness that is so much around us, which produces a restlessness and breeds all manner of, of anger and rage. Someone might say, well, it's just because they care. And I will grant that maybe a few actually do. But at the same time, you really can't care about something unless you've taken the time to research it. To make sure you're understanding the full story. And though you have a rage for people who are thousands of miles away, that rage is hurting people who are right in your neighborhood by keeping them from getting to where they need to be and blocking emergency services. How is that caring when you're hurting another group of people because you're angry about something thousands of miles away? Well, as we return to our, our look at the, the impact of the resurrection of Christ on the ages, the age and the age to come, it's very important to understanding the Old Testament prophets for they would speak of the current age, but then also so much of their prophecy had to do with the age to come. And it works to cover the whole flow of time from the beginning of creation 
right up to the summing up of all things, the final result, the end of this age to the beginning of the age to come. When does it happen? This is the question that was asked asked of Jesus in Matthew 24 in verse 3. So already there was an understanding to some degree of, of this great truth. But they asked in Matthew 24 and, and verse 3, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And secondly, what will be the sign of your coming? And then thirdly, and the end of the age. The end of this age. When does it happen? The New Testament teaches that we are, uh, that the age to come has already in some degree already commenced. If we turn to Galatians 4, in verse 4, somewhat of a very familiar uh, passage that we speak of even as we come into the Advent season. Galatians 4 and verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. When the fullness of time, when the fullness of the age had come to pass, the time designated by the Father. You see, sometimes people, they look at verses like this, and they point well, to this great occasion that happened at the specifically the right time that God had ordained for it. Right in the middle of the flow of history, well, some of that is very true, yes. But we have to see that it's also referring to something very important as we see in Ephesians 1 and verse 10, that in the administration of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in him. That is in the fullness of the times. That is the coming of Christ not only came in this time, this age, but it also in a way inaugurated the age to come. There's a there's a coming together of, of two ages in that. If we look at 1 Corinthians 1 and and uh, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 11. Same kind of thing is taking place now as he speaks about the things that happened in the Old Testament. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 11, now all of these things happen to them as examples. And they are written, were written for our admonition on whom the ends of the ages had come. The end of the ages, no matter how you want to look at the aid of this present age, has come upon those who believe in Christ with Christ's coming. With Christ's first advent, advent the, the ages have come. And yet, we know that the coming of Christ, the incarnation, we know of that, but also, that's the already the coming of Christ in his advent to, to live, to come and die in our place, that's the already. That's the incarnation. But it also has a not yet aspect. 
For in the coming of Christ, it inaugurated the fact that Christ was going to return as well. That whole process then began with the nativity. So the age to come has, in some ways, already begun, and in other ways, it is yet to come. You see, we often separate the first and second coming of Christ because of the time in between. But the end of the age could not come first without the first coming of Christ. The first coming of Christ sets up what? It sets up the resurrection, which does what? Sets up the ascension, which does what? Sets up the return. It's all interconnected. In Hebrews 9 and verse 6, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You see, his coming signaled the reality of the age to come. We could say the first coming, his coming to provide a sacrificial atoning for sin, his suffering for his people, we call it his humiliation. But what is the result of it? Well, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name, the name, which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. You see, with the resurrection, that end of the age has come. So now let's maybe get a little deeper, a little closer, a little clearer. We turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Chapter 15, Paul gives us a wonderful argument for the truth and necessity of the resurrection and its impact upon those who are in union with Christ. And also, at the same time, he places us on the location, if you will, of the timeline. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20, he says, But now Christ has risen from the dead, and what? Has become the first fruits." of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul is making a connection here. The Jews with their crops, the first fruits of the crops before they took anything to be their own, they gave it to the Lord in sacrifice. And then they kept the rest of the harvest for themselves. But the first fruits belonged to the Lord. But what does the first fruits tell us? Well, he said, this is the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead. In verses 22 and 23, 
He says, for in Adam, as in Adam all die, even in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterwards those who are Christ at his coming. Now think on, on the depth of what it is that we're being told here. With the resurrection of Christ, as he calls it the first fruits, well, if there's a first fruits, what has what of necessity has to take place? There has to be a harvest, a second harvest, if you will. Because you can't have first fruits if that's the whole harvest. So with the gleaning of the first fruits, the harvest has begun. So when Christ rose from the dead, that was the first fruits of the dead, which means we're going to follow. And that's the point that Paul is making. Where are we? We're on our way. We're part of that harvest. And so we see the order and the fact that the first fruits has already begun. In essence, the general resurrection of the dead at the end of history has already begun with the resurrection of Christ. Resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's made the end of the age the gleaning of souls a very present reality. Paul set up a connection in verses 12 through 19 when he said, Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is vain and your faith is also in vain. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, well, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. So he you see what happens in those verses 12 through 19? He's showing how directly we are connected to the resurrection of Christ. If we are in union with Christ, we are in direct connection with his resurrection. That is, if we what we proclaim about the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true, then the resurrection of believers, those in union with Christ is a rock-solid and settled truth. In Christ's resurrection, you are as good as resurrected yourself. Everything Jesus did, he did for the benefit of his people. And if you are in union with Christ, you are, in a sense, already in the age to come. For it says in Philippians 3, in verse 20, For our citizenship is in heaven from which we have all also eagerly await for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. We can read what Paul writes in Galatians 2 in verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, union with Christ. 
Well, if I've been crucified with him and he's been resurrected, then what of necessity must happen with me as well? I will be resurrected as well. We have, as you could say, two resurrections. In Ephesians 2, verses 5 and 6, he says, Even when we were dead in trespasses, Christ made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So he made us alive. So we're resurrection from the spiritual dead. And then notice what he said. And raised us up together and made us do what? Sit together, present tense, in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. The moment he raised us from the dead spiritually, he also transformed us into his kingdom and we are already in a way present there made us to sit together in the heavenly places one other place we can look at is in colossians chapter 3 colossians 3 and verse 1 if then you were raised with christ seek those things which are above where christ is sitting at the right hand of god Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Again, you were raised up. In Christ's resurrection, the age to come begins, and it overlaps the present age. So in Christ, not only has the age to come begun, but everyone who believes and who is in union with Christ is part of that age that's already taken place. Yes, there's the already that we experience, and there is the not yet that's waiting for us. Now, I don't know about you, but I, th I find a great deal of comfort from that. That no matter what, I'm in union with Christ, I'm basically already raised. I'm just waiting for that to take place. And in this time, when people are so quick to jump on 1 Thessalonians 3 and say, Oh, think about this. Paul said it was all to comfort. You comfort people with this. Not scare them to death. But you know why there's so many out there scared, trying to scare people to death? Because fear sells. If I stand here and say, hey, you know, you're all set in Christ. You're actually as good as raised from the dead, even as you're sitting there. I don't see anybody sitting back and going, oh, no. But there's so much fear mongering going on. Almost something that you would be filled with fear that you might be on a southwest flight. Jesus returns. And unfortunately for you, especially if you're an unbeliever, the pilot's a Christian. So is the co-pilot. <laughs> They fly out the cockpit, 
plane goes off by itself. Or you're driving down the car, down a I-40. Christ does this thing in the air that they're talking about. And you immediately have to press the button. Or if you're kind of old school like I am, use the crank to roll down the window so you can get out. I often think, anyone remember the beginning of the Flintstones? You know, Dino wouldn't fit in Fred's car. So what does Dino do? Well, his head goes through the top, the opening of the... So he's halfway on to the rapture here himself. These scary pictures of people making you think, oh, what a terrible, awful time it's going to be. Yes, if you don't believe in Christ, it's going to be an awful time because he comes to put down his enemies and bring in the eternal new heavens and earth. But he's told us that he's going to take away the weeds and they're going to go for the fire. He's told us that he's going to take his people, angels are going to or take us and put us in a safe place during that time. And then the, and Paul tells us not only that, when he returns, we'll be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. All believers. He says, comfort. Those who had died beforehand, don't worry about them. They're not being second-hand, second-place Christians or believers. They're coming with Christ. They've got that honor, and we'll go to meet all them. We'll be one body. Christ will destroy all that that rises up against him. Usher in the new kingdom where righteousness dwells. There are those who, who say, well, you know, when you believe in that, that's not very optimistic. What can be more optimistic than Jesus putting down his enemy, setting up a kingdom that lasts forever, not a short period of time, but forever where righteousness dwells. There's no more pain, no more death, no more tears. You can't get much more optimistic than that. In fact, eschatology is not designed to be either one or the other. It's just the fact, the truth of what is to come. And for if you are here today and you are in Christ, you're as good as in his hand, in the hand of all the other believers, you are as good as raised from the dead already. Because if God's promised it, then there's a present tense aspect to it. Let's stand together for prayer.